Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. My name is David Wolf Bender, a second year student at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. For today's episode, I am pleased to share my conversation with Mr. Chris Steyerwalt. Mr. Steyerwalt is a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. He focuses on politics, voting trends, and the media. Previously, he served as a political editor at Fox News Channel. He's also worked as a political editor of the Charleston Daily Mail and West Virginia Media. He has a book coming out this August. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's titled Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please be sure to give us a rating to help others find this podcast. And you can subscribe to the Campus Exchange so you'll be the first to know when a new episode is released. With that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. Steyerwalt about the 2022 midterm elections, how the media covers elections, and more. Please enjoy. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I have a, a wide array of questions generally, democracy, media, elections. Um, so kind of just to get started, the 2020 election was really, really unprecedented. It seemed pandemic, mail-in voting. It kind of changed like the course of what we, I think, consider normal elections. And it just looked different on election night. What do you think most of the major news and cable networks learned from covering the 2020 election and the way it went? And how do you think that's going to change the coverage of election nights and the lead up to election nights in the midterms this year and maybe a little bit further into the future? Well, they will probably not learn anything or they will learn the wrong things, such as the human condition. I think we have a tendency in all things to fight the last war, right? And the Things that made the 2020 election unique, one was that for the first time ever, a president tried to steal a second term. That is a the that's the rupture, right? So that's the rupture line. That's a thing that had never happened before in American history, that a president publicly, intentionally tried to undermine the election itself and then steal a second term for himself by subverting the constitutional order. This is a moment that at whatever point, when, when, the, when, when history tells the story of America in the 21st century, this one and the events of January 6th will linger. And it will be either a hot stove moment where the United States said, well, this is getting dangerous. We are getting close to the edge. I'll put it to you this way. That will not be the last time that a president does what Donald Trump did. Will it become the norm and will it happen quickly or will it be another hundred years from now? He opened Pandora's box by doing the unthinkable. It will be thinkable now for people in the future and it will be more easily rationalized because Trump will have lowered the, the, the threshold. The other unprecedented part was the pandemic, but that wasn't that unprecedented because America voted in midterm. So the, the, the pandemic, uh, more than a century ago, we carried out elections and da, 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 da. What it did do was accelerate an existing trend toward early and absentee voting. So basically, the way to think about it is in 2016, about 40% of ballots were cast by mail or early. In 2020, it was 60%. So it's a 50% increase, roughly, 
in the uh, percentage of ballots not cast on election day. This was a trend that had already been working its way through, interestingly, that was led by Republican states, mostly Florida and Texas and other southern states really liked early voting, really liked absentee voting. Uh, and uh, we'll see. I call it convenience voting. Um, I have serious objections to the use of convenience voting insofar as it degrades the value of Election Day. I, for one, would have Election Day as a federal holiday. I would I would prize Election Day and make it easy to vote on Election Day because I think it's good for people to see their neighbors when they go vote. And I think it's good for civic exercise. Detaching those things is probably not good. But anyway, mail-in and early voting changes the way people run for office. It changes the way people perceive candidates. It, cha- it changes a lot of stuff. For news organizations, the fundamentals are unchanged, which is that you can still, as uh, we did at Fox News in 2020, through a combination of survey work and early returns, come up with good projections. The problem with mail-in voting, which will persist, is that it just takes time. And when you have close races, it just takes time. So maybe a way to think about it is that from the dawn of the television age, when television became supreme, and let's say, let's state this to the Kennedy assassination or the mid-1960s, when you get standard national televised news and it becomes sort of the king of all media, the election forecasts from these news outlets were uh, the major parties don't have decision desks. Uh, nobody else does decision desks. So these network calls became, we were NGOs. We were non-governmental organizations doing civil society work or civic uh, work in making these calls so that people could go to bed. Here it comes, there it goes. Whatever Republican anxieties about absentee ballots cause for a short term. The long term is convenience voting will win out because people are lazy. And um, that is a, a reality that I don't think it is a good business model for these networks to call races because it upsets your viewers uh, when it doesn't go the way that you want. It's expensive to do um, because you have to spend a lot of money for the research data. Uh, you have to have uh, sophisticated computers and software, uh, and you need a bunch of uh, nerds like me. So it's a lot easier to just wait and see. And if America becomes acclimatized to when races are even reasonably close, it's days before you get a result. I guess we'll just have to sort of learn to live with that. Along those lines, you kind of talked about decision desks and you talked a lot about how this will not be the first time um, or the last time, excuse me, that a president tries to do what President Trump did in the aftermath of the 2020 election. That kind of goes along with this next question a little bit about like the rise of cable TV and the promotion of different viewpoints. I mean, I know Fox, Fox seemed to, to you know, a cop is, you know, the channel of the right and then MSNBC kind of, and CNN kind of moved to the left and I mean, Fox for a while had, you know, these really strong, you know, journalism names, you know, Shepard Smith and uh, Chris Wallace, but them and the likes of them seem to be gone at this point. 
Do you think that the partisan divisions of cable news uh, are increasing? And if so, what effect is that going to have on the landscape and the electorate and how we call election results in the future? Because I know that was a big problem in 2020 on Fox. Well, I think the the calling of them, I just don't think it's a good business model. I, I think it, the the cost, if you're a network executive, the cost benefit on decision desks uh I just don't think it's long-term sustainable, especially if you're not able to make calls on the big night. I think you can do what you can basically do is have somebody like me, or you could have the great Harry Anton at CNN, or you could have Steve Kornacki at MSNBC go on TV and say, well, here's where the votes are. This is what the counties look like. We're waiting for more votes to come in. I think I expect them to move more to that transparent model uh, rather than actually doing the the forecasting work, because think about it this way. Even if the result of the election is in line with what your viewers or listeners or whatever want, the sooner the race is called, the less reason they have to stay and watch. So you're actually arguing against interest. So basically, the way that it happened was in the old days, it was a race in like old fashioned journalism, who can get there first, who can make the call first. But now we are in what some people, what some scholars call post journalism. Uh, And in this concept, it is about establishing deep emotional connections with your consumers to habituate, to addict them, to ensorcel them uh, and, and bring them into a deep connection with you so that you are sort of at the center of their media life. And if that's what you're doing, uh, calling races doesn't really fit because you're not trying to break news. You're not trying to be first. You're trying to be, you're trying to have the most addicted audience. So I just don't think calling races fits that business model very well. Kind of on that note about calling races, I know Fox specifically in 2020, a lot of viewers, traditional Fox viewers moved platforms. I mean, there was a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that people were shifting toward platforms like Newsmax or One American News Network, which were openly denying the results of the presidential, especially after the Arizona call. And I know when we can talk about the Arizona call that got specifically some people on the right mad. Do you think the introduction of Newsmax, One American News is going to have an effect on, I guess, what these major networks are doing with decision desks? Or do you kind of think that they're going to be moving? Do you think that the networks are kind of going to stay the course and kind of just deal with these new pieces of the market that could have an effect on their consumer base. Because if they're trying to addict their consumer and their consumer is leaving, what, what are they going to have to do? Well, as I say, look, I, I just don't think the decision desk is a, is a good... I, I don't know another way to say it. I don't think the decision desk model is a good... I don't think it fits the profit structure for networks now. I just don't think... I, th- I think everybody will be reading the New York Times and looking at the New York Times dials. Uh, They'll be looking at, what is it called? Uh, Decision Desk HQ. Uh, They'll be looking at other people and then they'll have their own in-house experts who then go through that. Again, I don't think that the Decision Desk model is, I don't think it is long for this world. Sure. Okay, so uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, looking now at the Biden administration and looking back at the Trump administration, President Trump was obviously very combative with the press, um, but we've seen a somewhat similar tone from President Biden. I mean, even if you don't describe him as, I guess, combative, he's certainly been blunt with some members of the press. I'm thinking about 
Biden's interactions with like Peter Ducey, for example, at Fox or. Well, no, no, no. Wait a minute. That was a good one. That was actually kudos to both in that Biden said something called Peter Ducey, a dumb son of a bitch in a hot mic. And Peter Ducey had an opportunity. He could have been deeply, he could have, I call them the Umbridge Olympics here in Washington. He could have taken deep offense. And so we, we saw, I think it's unfair to say that Biden is like Trump on this stuff. Trump's election was more about the media than the Democratic Party, right? He was running against the media. People hate the media. We're the worst. Uh, and people have low confidence in the news media they, uh, for understandable reasons. So Trump, when he talked about the enemy of the people and the press would get very upset and say, oh, you can't say that. And then they'd fight with him and which is getting them out of their lane. Right. Don't uh, never wrestle with the pig. He likes the mud and uh, you will just come out dirty. And that's really what we saw a lot of the media do in 2016. Uh, Jim Rutenberg wrote a piece for the New York Times they put on the front page, which basically said it's time to jettison objectivity. I'm being a little unfair, but it's time to jettison objectivity because Trump is so bad. And of course, the answer is quite the opposite. That's when you have to return to best practices and first principles. When somebody as morally unmoored as Donald Trump and with as little respect for the niceties of American public life uh, as Donald Trump is there. The answer isn't to meet him where he is. The answer is to practice good journalism and dig in and do it. So the fights that he would have with, let's say, Jim Acosta from CNN or the showdown, the constant showdowns between some reporter uh, and the White House, whether it was Trump himself or one of his spokespeople, was good for everybody involved, right? Because the uh, White House got cred with their base supporters who hate the press, hate the liberal media. And then the reporters got cred with their viewers who said, yeah, they're fighting. Look at, they're in there fighting, fighting, fighting. Uh, so it worked really well for the participants in these conflicts, but did not help readers, did not help the Republic, did not help viewers, did not do any good for anybody else except for the people involved. Um, when Biden said what he said about Peter Ducey, they could have continued the same cycle that would have been beneficial for each of them with their basis, right? Biden could have said, yeah, I called him an SOB and I da 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 And people on the left would have cheered, right? The Chris Hayes stands would have loved it, right? If Biden had slapped down the evil Fox News and why is Fox News even there? Could have been good for Biden in that narrow stack. And it would have been great for Ducey with Sean Hannity viewers if he would have been like, yeah, and I stuck it to him and I'm so mad at him and this is unacceptable. But they both acted like grownups. It was quite lovely. They both acted like adult people who had heard uh, words said in anger before. Uh, and there was moving on. And Ducey said, I don't care what he calls me as long as he's taking my calls. And, <laughs> and that's, and that is the right grown up adult way to do it. So I think it's not fair to put Biden as the same as Trump. Biden certainly is cantankerous and certainly, you know, look, watching Joe Biden do a press conference is like watching an old dog walk across a fr freshly waxed linoleum floor. You're like, are, are the legs going to go out from, at what point is he going to collapse? And he seems uncomfortable doing it. Um, Joe Biden was never great on his feet. Uh, he has, uh, as he nears his uh, 80th uh, year on the planet, he has not gotten any better 
That's for sure. So his team knows that Biden cannot. There is a thing that happens in administrations. Uh, This certainly happened with George W. Bush and Barack Obama, certainly happened with Bill Clinton, where the team says, we love the boss. Let's the boss is our best salesman. Let's put him out there. Let's put him out there. Let's put him out there. That is not the case in the Biden White House. They know that they can't put him out there because he is error prone and really struggles. So there is a different tension. Trump was on TV every day. Right. He would. Uh, they eventually had lighting stand stanchions put in to light him better for his what we called chopper talk as he was doing his little talk show. That is, he would walk to Marine One and he would call on reporters and do his little thing. So Trump made himself available to the press constantly, but not in a way that provided accountability. Accountability is I'm going to sit down and have a long interview on camera with somebody who can hold me accountable. And we remember the occasions when Trump did. It went very poorly for him when he spoke to Lester Holt and admitted that he fired James Comey because of the Russia investigation, thereby creating the special counsel investigation in one uh, fell swoop. We remember his interview with Jonathan Jonathan Swan from Axios, where Swan was asking basic, rigorous, the kind of questions that you would ask a president, and Trump was flummoxed. Uh, We remember Chris Wallace's interview of Trump, where Trump got furious over it. Those kinds of settings provide accountability because it happens in real time. There are follow-up questions. We're going to be here for a half an hour. Let's talk. I've joked about Donald Trump and seagull management. You fly in, you poop all over everything, you make a lot of noise, and then you fly away. And Trump really, <laughs> Trump really liked that stuff. Biden can't even do that because he's pretty unsteady. So that is the, the, the challenge is the press corps always wants more of the president. It's usually a mistake to give them more, but there's tension if you don't, because if you don't spoon feed uh, these baby ducks in the press corps, they will get frustrated because they're not getting enough scoop. They're not getting enough action. They're not getting on the front page themselves. So balancing that out when you have a weak president like Biden is tough. That was, that was actually a lot of what my next question was about was that, you know, Biden's approach seems to be more low key. The Biden administration, they've kind of held him. I mean, he didn't do very many uh, press conferences. He's done fewer one-on-one interviews. What would you say about Biden's strategy with the press? Like, is it working out for him? Because as you said, they, there are certain things that like the press want that access, but is that working for the administration? Well, at this, at this recording, at the time of this recording, it is because there is an international crisis in which the demands and desires of the press corps shift. So the media, the news media basically eat like a cowboy. Cowboy only has one dish. So he can only ever eat one thing at a time. He can have the beans, he can have the brisket, but he can only do one thing because he's only got the one dish. Um, There's only one, there's there's so much groupthink and so much narrative in the National Press Corps where it's like, this is the story. And then it's, and then this is the story. So it's Russia, it's the, it's the Russiagate story. And then it's coronavirus. And then it's like, as coronavirus is ending, it's like, well, what are we going to do now? And fortunately for them, uh, unfortunately for the people of Ukraine, here comes the next big story. And this changes the input. So when there isn't a clear story, reporters are going to gin up, White House reporters are going to gin up 
well, what's going on with Kamala Harris? I heard Kamala Harris say that she didn't like, well, I heard that somebody said that. And there is such promiscuous, ridiculous use of blind quotes of anonymous quotes now that the ability to gin up phony, and I'm not saying Kamala Harris isn't bad at being vice president, or I'm not saying that Kamala Harris, uh, that there isn't tension between Kamala Harris's office and the West Wing. And I'm not saying any of it isn't true, but I am saying it's not a very big story, right? It's a, the vice president and the president don't get along. That's interesting. It's interesting to see how it plays out later, but it's not hard news in the sense of it has consequence. But those are the stories that the press corps is going to run to when there isn't an obvious screaming story. So basically, I, I, I would put it this way. What a White House wants to do is keep them busy. So that's why reporters of the news media loved coronavirus. It's something to talk about all the time. It doesn't require any news judgment. And it's easy, right? If you are a White House reporter today, as we record this, what does your what does your editor want? What does your boss want? What's the latest on Ukraine? Can you get anything else? Can you get a nugget? Can you get a blind quote? Can you call somebody at the Pentagon? Can you get a little more so that we can appear to have something new about the story that everybody wants to talk about? So right now, yes, Biden's press strategy is working in the sense, but he cannot count on Vladimir Putin to continue to invade countries. It is fair to say that Joe Biden is getting much more favorable coverage than Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump got a lot of a lot of Donald Trump's negative coverage. He not only brought upon himself, but wanted. Right. It was part of his strategy to have this combative relationship. It, but it would be fair to say that over time, Democratic presidents have an easier time with the press than Republicans do for some obvious reasons that relate to who, who works in the national press corps. Right. Um, I am the only person, well, there's one other reporter I've met, uh, but there's, I'm, I'm one of two people I have ever encountered uh, in the national media uh, who is from my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, these, it's a community of people who went to, uh, a lot of people who went to Swishy schools, uh, a lot of people who are from the Northeast, uh, predominantly, you know, the Acela Corridor, uh, you get a little Chicago, you get a little Miami, you get a L- L.A., but it's mostly from blue states. I think I saw I think the statistic was that something like three quarters of the reporters working in 2016 were working in a county that Hillary Clinton won. So there is a disconnect between the media and the electorate, for sure, on politics. And it reflects itself in a a bias. When a Republican president is in office, so I guess maybe think about it this way. There's a reservoir of ill will for every president when they take office. There is this lake. I think the lake for Republicans is bigger than the lake for Democrats. But there is still a lake for Democrats. We remember, or I remember, uh, after Obama became president, there was a constant stream of, but what about the liberals? The liberals are unhappy. Like the, the looking for the story, finding the story about Obama's not fulfilling his promises. What about the drone strikes? What about this? And again, not saying it's not true, not saying that there wasn't tension there. Um, but 
Donald Trump took the standard Republican. If, if Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or whomever had been elected president in 2016, here's the standard issue res, Republican reservoir. They're destroying the environment. They hate women. They hate everybody. They're serving their fat cat friends. Like you can hotkey a lot of the stories that you know are going to be written. Trump took the lake and built a big, beautiful lake. He took a, he, he built the greatest reservoir of ill will that anybody has ever seen because he, he thought he benefited by it. And he did up to a point. But it, then he didn't. His handling of the coronavirus. I firmly believe that if Donald Trump had outsourced the coronavirus commission had really let Mike Pence run things, he probably would have gotten reelected. I think if he could have, if he could have just stayed away from it, but he couldn't, he had to go down and take over the briefings and he had to talk about putting light, put it, putting light inside the body uh, and disinfectants in the lungs. But anyway, Biden's relationship with the press is not good. They're not happy. But Ukraine creates a pause. What Biden has to hope on the other side of what transpires in Eastern Europe is that he has gotten past the narrative of the first part of his presidency, which is about stumbles and Afghanistan and the failures of uh, the failure of Build Back Better and mo- and move on to something else. That's that's his best hope. And in kind of transitioning, you, you mentioned Russia, Ukraine. That issue is obviously dominating the headlines right now, but it's not really known, I guess, how long of a time this will be, you know, on the front page of the New York Times going forward. I've seen writing from analysts that, that suggests that foreign affairs issues traditionally get less, resonate less with voters than domestic issues do. Will this foreign issue be any different because it's going to have such an effect on domestic Issues like the prices of like food and gas. Um, do, what do you say? That is a great question. That is a great question. So it is true that Americans uh, generally work pretty hard, especially in a midterm year. American voters work pretty hard to not care too much about foreign affairs. Um, most of the things that happen in foreign affairs can be summed up to Americans as yet another reason why I'm glad I live in America. So that is certainly true. But it is also true that uh, they don't sell many waxy heart-shaped chocolates except for a couple of weeks of the year in February. Like, we know that it's true until it's not. And Ukraine, I think, first, let's give the American people some real credit here. The work that journalists are doing in Ukraine now, and of course, through social media, the images, the stories, the experiences coming out of Ukraine hold a mirror up to American public life today. And as Americans reflect on squabbling ingratitude, a fixation on meaningless stories and argle-bargle, Ukraine is, is reminding Americans of nobler ambitions. And that is a very good thing. And it's also a very good thing that I think Americans are going to have some... Americans are going to have quite a lot of tolerance for high energy prices for a period of time because they understand them in the context of an international crisis. Biden's efforts with the Saudis, with the uh, Emiratis, uh, with um, uh, Venezuela to try to get more oil production up, though, speak to the conundrum. 
Biden's left is, and just this week, uh, the administration announced they were going to crack down on diesel emissions, uh, something, 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 because they know that global warming is the number one issue. Anti-racism and global warming, climate change are the dominant issues, the, the organizing principles for the progressive left. And what Biden does not want to do is say, drill, baby, drill. We're opening up. We're going to drill more here. We're going to more energy. We got it. The, the, that the, the right thing to do for Ukraine and for the American people is to rapidly increase American energy production. And the Republicans are going, they're softly saying it now, or well, normal Republicans are softly saying it now, but the volume will continue to go up because if Americans are paying four, more than $4 a gallon for gasoline, and there is the slightest idea that the president could do something to alleviate that, even if it's mostly just talking points, that will be unsustainable and voters will not, voters will punish Biden. I think right now we're in the window where there's going to be a generosity of spirit. You can't look at the pictures of these kids being evacuated from Ukraine without, and, and then, and then immediately turn around and say, how come my gas is so, gas is so high. But uh, we remember energy prices are regressive uh, as a percentage of, for poor folks and for working class Americans, the percentage of their budgets that uh, 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 the percentage that energy makes up of their budgets is so high. And when it, when you take a family that is earning at around the national uh, median income, if you increase energy prices, if you increase gas prices by 50%, that's crippling. And these also happen to be a lot of the folks who commute very long distances. So it's really punishing. And food prices work the same way. It's very regressive. So it's not sustainable long term. So the countdown till the November election, the time is going to fly by. The way the, the political calendar works, we're about to jump right through all these primaries. And it will be the 4th of July before you know it. And for Biden, if the construct is, yeah, I guess he was pretty good with Ukraine, but he's bad on energy prices and gas is still high. That's a that's a real killer for Democrats. So staying on the 2022 elections, uh, I mean, I'm from Virginia, so I have to ask a question about where, <laughs> where in Virginia are you from? I'm originally from Fairfax. Nova. Nova. Yeah. OK. All right. So, yeah, just like right outside D.C. But I mean, obviously, Virginia held its Commonwealth wide elections in November and the GOP made huge inroads, swept the swept the elections up and down the Commonwealth. And I guess because Virginia holds their elections in the off year, I know people use, like to use that as a possible predictor of the midterms. Um, we certainly did that in 2017 and I had a, a pretty good comparison to 2018. And in 2011. And right. in 2007, we did it, but it's, I think something like in nine of 11 of the, of the past quadrennial elections in Virginia, the results were predictive of the coming midterms. I know like, Virginia is a fairly like ornery political environment um, against the, like, they like to vote against the presidency, it seems. So what should the two parties take away from that election? And do you have any predictions for what the landscape for 2022 could look like based on what we saw in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Well, what we saw in Virginia and New Jersey, if you were to take the average difference 
uh, between New Jersey and Virginia compared to the results of the and, and applied it to the results of the 28, the last midterm, the 28, 2018 midterms. If you were to just extrapolate and I wouldn't really do this, but if you were to just take a straight line extrapolation from the results of 2018 to what's going to happen in 2022, it would be the Republicans would gain 31 seats in the House, about 31 seats in the House. Now, that's not that big of a number because the average gain for a party out of power uh, in a president's first midterm since Ronald Reagan is 28 seats. So that puts the that would put the Republicans right in the spot. Uh, it's not just Virginians that oppose presidents in power. American voters, uh, there have only been two in the modern era, two cases where sitting presidents in any midterm uh, did not lose seats. That was George Bush after 9-11 and Bill Clinton as Newt Gingrich fell down the stairs. So the expectation is that the Democrats will lose the House. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just it would be at this point, you know, it would take a real miracle because the Republicans only need five seats, I think. So it'd take a real miracle. Senate's a a pretty pure toss up for me because we don't know about the quality of the candidates. The lesson from Virginia is that voters would like the parties to be normal. And uh, if you can be normal, voters will reward you. I think there is a real desperation for sanity and normalcy. The folks who made the difference, the Democratic Governors Association commissioned a poll that was very good, delicious data. And they looked at who were the voters that made the difference for Glenn Youngkin. And the answer was dudes from places like where you're from, men specifically, who had voted for Biden and crossed over to vote for Youngkin. So we have a serious, you know, we have a very terrible primary election system in America. It is a cancer on our republic and it it grows. It incentivizes all the wrong things. It just is the pits. And it's a 40-year experiment that has clearly failed. So boo primaries. But Glenn Youngkin demonstrates that if Republicans can move beyond 2020 and not talk about it, that it can really work for them. And that if you can look normal and sound normal, that it will really work because people are, are, have a real appetite for normalcy. But remember, Glenn Youngkin couldn't have done what he did without Donald Trump's help. If Donald Trump wanted to have ruined that election for Glenn Youngkin, he could have done it in a weekend, right? He could have show, show, showed up in Northern Virginia, he- held rallies, said crazy stuff, done whatever. And then the story is either, is Youngkin going to appear on stage? Well, why didn't Youngkin appear? Well, is he going to appear? Because Trump knows that he can put every Republican in an unhappy position, which is either to embrace him closely and alienate persuadable voters or keep their distance and alienate his, you know, that third of the Republican Party that is really under his thrall. So that's a terrible choice. Trump knows it. It is the source of his power. And it is the way that he can torture Republicans. And that's why they act like a bunch of goofballs uh, when they start thinking and acting about how to get his endorsement or get his not like, what can they do? How can they do it? Makes him crazy. And so last question, staying on on Virginia extrapolating nationally, um, one of one of my favorite 
political studies of all time was post-2018. It was a USA Today investigation, or not really investigation, but an analysis that said that something like 70% of the districts in which Democrats flipped control had a Whole Foods market in them. Uh, and the, yeah. the, the idea is that Whole Foods obviously represent, um, I mean, they're usually based in locations that are affluent uh, and affluent educated suburban neighborhoods. And I mean, there's some evidence that Democrats really dug in, as you mentioned, to suburban voters, which were traditionally Republican voting blocks prior. Be careful not to overstate how traditionally Republican those voting blocks are. Okay. The suburbs are the battleground. The way to think about the American electorate is this. Half of the voters live in the suburbs. To win elections in the United States, you win the suburbs because the cities are Democratic and getting more so. The rural areas are Republican and getting more so, right? So if you live in a small town or you live in a rural county, you're overwhelmingly likely to be in a heavy Republican space. So the the red counties have gotten redder. The blue counties have gotten bluer. So you're talking about you look at the map and you can picture those bright blue uh, these azure blue islands in this lake of deep, deep, deep red. You think about that great New York Times interactive map where you can go down to the zip code level and see the intensity. So there is a strong correlation between income and education and propensity to vote. The richer and better educated you are, the more likely a voter you are. It has ever been thus. Uh, and this is, by the way, one of the frustrations that progressives in America often have. Well, it's a it's a wrong frustration they have because there's plenty of research to say that low frequency voters are more Democratic than Republican. Here's one that you can put. Think about for the future. The single biggest fallacy driving American public life today is the misperception among both Republicans and Democrats that high turnout is good for Democrats. There's no evidence that it's true. It's not true. I can we can uh, I would direct you to uh, the turnout myth by Professor Darren Shaw at the University of Texas. But there is tons and tons and tons of evidence that says there's no correlation. So but we'll set that we'll set that aside right now. The highest propensity voters are college educated, affluent Americans. They vote. You can't help. You can't stop them from voting. They, They will vote. So that makes them that makes them the most valuable demographic, especially for older. So the older you are, the more likely you are to vote, too. It's a 50 percent higher frequency. These are rough numbers, but voter likelihood is about 50 percent higher for voters over 45 than it is for voters under 30. So that's just that's that's just that's just how it is. So suburban voters are always the answer to the question. We have talked about it in many different ways over my lifetime. These are soccer moms. No, we meant NASCAR dads. No, we meant this. No. And it's like, yeah, you mean the suburbs, dummies. Like it's always <laughs> the suburbs. The question for the Democrats in the 1990s, the Republican Party became was beset by the demands of the moral majority. And I'm using the lowercase moral majority here, but for socially conservative Republicans, a lot of evangelical Christians forced their issue set onto the Republican Party. And it worked out great for Bill Clinton, right? It worked out really great for Bill Clinton. 
because Republicans were talking about issues that Americans were not connecting with. Right. Americans didn't want to talk about abortion. They didn't want to talk about uh, Bill Clinton's gross conduct. They didn't want to talk about that stuff. They wanted to talk about the stuff they always want to talk about, which is how is my life going to get better? How much does gas cost? How high are my taxes? What's the economy look like? Am I do I feel safe? These are always the issue. This is always the issue set for persuadable voters. The Democrats have a similar problem now that they are besieged by their own moral majority. Uh, and there it's about anti-racism. It's about climate. It's about gender. It's about all of this stuff. And these voters are not the, these activists. And um, David Shore, former Democratic data guy, there's a lot of voices out there on the uh, on the left, on the Democratic side that said, look, you guys are not talking about bread and butter issues for voters. You're talking about boutique stuff that is feels very important to young activists, but doesn't connect to these suburban voters. So, yes, it's Whole Foods. Uh, yes, it's all of that. But Democrats got all of the information they needed in 2020, but they did not want to listen because what the electorate told the Democratic Party in 2020 was, yeah, 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 Trump, no, too much. It's too much. No mas. So the electorate said that. And then you look down ticket and what did America say? Perfectly good with Republican Congress, not against the Republican Party, not there had not been some tectonic shift toward the Democrats. The agenda that Democrats pursued upon entry immediately revealed that they did not understand how close the 2020 election really was. Like Joe Biden should have beat Donald Trump by a bajillion points. Um, but it was, you know, it got it. It, it was a, a, a stout electoral margin, but narrow in a bunch of states where that that margin was achieved. So Democrats did not take those lessons. They went the wrong way. I think the Virginia election woke up a lot of Democrats like, oh, man, this is bad. We're, we're really headed for trouble. We've got to get off these social issues and these wedge issues. We've got to talk about economy. We've got to stay focused on the stuff that people care about. It probably won't be enough. Um, and the Republican overconfidence will be a factor if they're going around uh, ousting Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. It's clear that the Republicans have a problem with keeping their focus on the focus. But uh, I think it won't be enough for Democrats. They're probably heading for a pretty bad beating. Uh, and then when it's over uh, or even before it's over, the, the most important, most interesting part for a journalist of every election will begin, which is the casting of blame and the vendettas. That's always the most entertaining part to get to cover. Sure. All right. Well, those are all the questions I have. I know that we're just at time. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. That was really interesting. Well, I appreciate you being so interested and thank you for being a huge nerd. Nerds will have to unite to save the world again. I guess. Yes, they will. <laughs> it was very good talking to you. Smart questions. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Campus Exchange podcast. If you want to learn more about AEI's work on university campuses across the country, visit AEI.org. And just a reminder that you can pre-order Mr. Steierwald's book. It's titled Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. And once again, my name is David Wolfbender. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. You can find my information at davidwolfbender.com or follow me at dbenderpt on Twitter. Also, make sure you follow the academic programs team at AEI at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about AEI's events across the country and up-and-coming programs for students. 
And thank you again for listening to my conversation with Mr. Steierwalt.